Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for all it tells us about Jesus, the one whose body was broken for us and whose blood was shed for us. Lord, we pray just now that you would speak to each of us by your Holy Spirit as your word is preached. And Lord, may we know Jesus all the more closely for it. And we pray in his name. Amen. I wonder if I asked you, what is the greatest need of people who live in Belfast? What you would say? I suppose if this was a Sunday school class or something, you'd probably say they need to know Jesus. You know, you'd probably have that on and and well done if your mind went there immediately. But we probably think of all kinds of things, don't we? We probably think about education. We think about people in our community who are caught up in issues with with drugs and addiction. We think of housing issues, hunger, uh, mental health, employment. We, We think about all kinds of things. And if you speak to people in the area, I suppose some of their answers might surprise you. And, and I've found that a few times um, setting at our, our food table on the Friday. When people come and speak to you, you'd be amazed um, how far people have traveled to be here and the sorts of issues they have in their lives. But I heard recently um, of a church far away from Belfast in, in Kenya that met every week under a tree. And this is a true story. And it happened that uh, an American church got in touch with them through a few missionaries um, who work with a friend of mine, and they gave them some financial help. Um, But the next summer, the Americans decided, we we better get together uh, and do something. We really want to help these people. You know, we want to help them that they're out there meeting under a tree in the baking heat. We really want to help them out. So they went out and they did a building project and they uh, built them a church uh, and they worshiped together in the church and they were all, they all seemed very appreciative. But what happened the next week after this American team went home is the church went back out and met under the tree again because they were quite happy out there. In fact, they thought it was quite a good witness to the people around them. This church, I don't know exactly who they were, but they had assumed they knew what the needs were and they didn't get it right. And I suppose the point that I'm trying to make in all this is that sometimes we assume we know what people's needs are when in fact we don't. And I think this might actually just be true of the story, this familiar story um, in the book of Exodus. I'm sure it's a story that is familiar to many of us. Um, If you are of my generation, nearly any wet day in school, the Prince of Egypt was put on um, on a TV that was wheeled in or any kind of Sunday school event where we watched the film, it was usually um, the Prince of Egypt that was put on. So I I could probably nearly um, lip sync with some of that stuff. And we might assume that we know what the greatest need is of the people in that story. I mean, they they need to be slaved from slavery, don't they? They've become very numerous. Uh, The Egyptians feel threatened by all of that. Uh, And we have that horrible call of the Israelite boys. Um, It's hard to say how many boys might have died. Uh, We know that midwives saved some by saying, oh, you know, those those, uh, Israelite women, they're just too vigorous. They give birth before we get there and we can't do anything about it. Um, But some people think maybe about 10,000 died. Some say maybe up to five or 600,000. We we don't know, um, but we do know from some information from outside of the Bible that, that this policy lasted probably around three years and many of the boys were drowned in the River Nile. It's horrible. And they find themselves under this brutal regime, completely ruthless, determined, will will stop at nothing to ensure that they rule over the Israelites. They're enslaved, they're worked hard, 
Uh, eventually, they're asked to make their own bricks when Moses goes to the Pharaoh and asks him to let the people go. Pharaoh decides that the people are lazy and really he shouldn't be providing straw for their bricks anymore. So what is their greatest need? Well, let's look at the story together. Because where we find the Israelites in Exodus 12 is in the middle of a series of signs and wonders that we sometimes call the 10 plagues sent by God to Egypt. And the context of all these is that God has through Moses commanded Pharaoh to let his people go. And Pharaoh has not played ball. Pharaoh has refused. refused sorry. And so ultimately these signs and wonders that God gives are a response to sin. And we see this if we go back into Exodus chapter 10 and verses 16 and 17. This is during a plague that God sends of locusts which completely wipe out all the crops. Pharaoh realizes this. This is what he says. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. So the reason for these plagues, the reason why they're in the situation that they are in, ultimately, is it's about sin. It's about God's judgment. These signs and wonders are, are a sign of God's judgment on the Egyptians. He's judging them for disobedience because they're not letting the people go as he has commanded. And also for worshiping false gods. And we read something of that in Exodus 12 and verse 12. On that same night, God says, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. So God is, is judging the people for disobedience. He's judging them, judging the false gods. Egypt has sinned. Even Pharaoh gets it by the end of the story that this is about sin. But what about the Israelites in the midst of all of this? Perhaps surprisingly, they aren't exempt from God's judgment. I think often we think of, of the Israelites as the, as the people who were, who were blessed by God and delivered, and of course they were, but we don't think of them as people who were also under judgment. But we find a mixture as we look through the plagues. In the plague on livestock, we read in chapter 9, all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. That's 9 verse 6. So there we see that the Israelites are protected. Likewise, when God sent the plague of hail, we read the only place it did not heal was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. That's 9 verse 26. So sometimes God shields his people from judgment, but there are other plagues where that's not the case. Again, still in chapter 9, the plague of boils, we're told, is on men and animals throughout the land. And that plague of locusts that I mentioned a moment ago, we read that the locusts covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail. So basically what they devoured was the Israelite crops, everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. It's chapter 10, verse 15. So wh why is that? Why is it that sometimes God seems to protect his people from the judgment that he's pouring out? And other times, he doesn't. It's not a question that we can answer easily. 
perhaps this morning's sermon by Marty on, on why God allows us um, to suffer and we'll go some way towards answering that. We, we live in a fallen world and it's not necessarily that God causes that suffering, but he will use it and we trust that he has a purpose in it. But I think at the very least, we can say that the root of the problem is sin. Even if the Israelites are God's people, even if at times we see them obeying God, they live in a fallen world as we do. At the end of chapter five, we see that they reject Moses and Aaron. So they are sinners too. They say, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. That's because Moses has obeyed God. He's asked Pharaoh to let the people go. And Pharaoh responded by removing the supply of straw for them to make bricks and made their work harder. So the Israelites were sinners too. They'd, They'd failed to realize what God was doing and they lived among great sin. And to come back to the story in chapter 12, they were going to face the consequences of this too just like the Egyptians, as the destroyer would come to to Egypt and strike down all the firstborn. Well, that applied to the Israelites too, except God gave them a way out. If it weren't for the Passover lamb, though, it would apply to them too. So their greatest need wasn't to be released from slavery. Of course, they, they did want that. They needed that. It wasn't to recover from the mental trauma of, of a generation of boys just wiped out. It wasn't deliverance from boils or locusts or anything like that. Their greatest need was to be delivered from God's judgment. Maybe our mind goes to the New Testament in Romans 3 where we read, there is no one righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't think we often think about this story through that lens of the Israelites facing God's judgment. We think of the Egyptians facing God's judgments, of course. We think of the Israelites receiving God's blessing in deliverance. It's not wrong to think like that, but there's more to it than that. The Israelites find themselves in the middle of a great tension, and it's a tension that really is reflective of our last two Sunday evenings together as part of this series. On the one hand, their relationship with God has been broken by sin, so they rightly face God's judgment. They are sinful and fallen. But on the other hand, they are descendants of Abraham and God has promised to bless them. He's promised to bless all nations through them. He's promised to deliver them from slavery. He's going to bless them. He's going to dwell with his people in the promised land. But in order for that to happen, their sin must be dealt with. God's judgment has to be executed on their sin. So God's judgment had been upon the people with the sending of these plagues, though we also see his mercy and blessing on them and sparing them from some of the plagues. So we begin to see something of that tension between God dealing with sin and God blessing them. And then this final wonder comes. God will strike down the firstborn throughout the land as punishment for the Egyptians' disobedience to his call to let the people go, as punishment for them serving other gods, and as punishment for them enslaving God's people. But God's people were sinners too. And although they would be blessed, they faced God's judgment too. Now, I appreciate that what we're talking about here tonight is pretty horrible. The killing of firstborn children. I I said it was horrible when when Pharaoh did it, but this is God we're talking about. It's awful. It's horrible. It, it, It doesn't bear thinking about. And we might wonder 
how God could do such a thing. But I suppose when we grasp the nature of sin, how it offends our holy God, how its ultimate consequence is is bearing his wrath in the horror that is hell, then maybe it helps us to put this punishment into perspective, but it's still not easy. We still might say that the, the punishment fits the crime in a way, because Pharaoh had killed the firstborn Israelites, and now God would kill the firstborn Egyptians. There's something of justice in that, but it's still not easy for us to think about. The Israelites' greatest need was to be saved from this judgment. So here's what they do. I've, I've outlined it there for you in verses three to five. Uh, they are to take a perfect year old lamb and the amount is dictated by the size of the family. I, I love that little sentence. I probably won't be able to, to find it now, but where it says you, you're to determine it by how much each person will eat. You just kind of have to go around the house and say, well, she doesn't eat much and he eats like a horse and she eats lots. And you had to kind of try and work out how much the people eat. And if you maybe lived on your own or whatever, if you weren't if you didn't have a big family, you maybe went and joined with another family. Then in verses six to seven, you were to take care of the lamb, make sure it was perfect and unblemished, and then to kill it and put some of the blood on the door frames of the house. Then eat it all with, ye- with bread without yeast in it and bitter herbs. And then in verse 11, they were to eat the meal. But do you notice how they had to eat the meal? They had to be completely ready to leave Egypt. They were to have their cloak tucked into their belts. They were to have their staff in their hand and their sandals on their feet. They were to be ready to go, and we'll come back to that. This is exactly what the Israelites do. We're told simply that they did exactly what the Lord had commanded them to do. Verse 28, the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. God does then what he has promised to do, and as a result, Pharaoh does what he said he would not do, and he lets the people go. Notice that the Israelites are actually to be saved from God. They're to be saved from his judgment and they're also saved by God. And also notice the last verse we read, verse 30. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. It might be tempting if we took that verse just as we read it to think that it's not true because surely there were houses without somebody dead. But that's not true because the fact is there was in every house somebody had died. But in the case of the Israelites, it was a lamb in in place of the firstborn. In any house with a firstborn son who had survived, a lamb had already died. There'd been a death in every house, either a son or a lamb. So this tells us about how God rescues his people from his judgment. That rescue comes through something dying in their place. If we want to use the the fancy language, it's substitution. The firstborn should die. That would be justice. Because Israel didn't obey God, that they were sinful. And that includes Moses. You might remember earlier in the story in in chapter 2 that Moses killed one of the Egyptians for being too harsh on an Israelite. But instead, a lamb was substituted and died instead. This is how God rescues people from his judgment, by offering someone or someone else to take the judgment in the place of the one who deserves it. Naturally enough, I suppose that brings us to the events in the Gospel of Luke chapter 22. In that upper room, Jesus and his disciples, they're obeying God's commands in Exodus 12 to remember the Passover, to reenact it, 
to commemorate God delivering the people from slavery and saving them from his judgment. We have unleavened bread, we have wine. Now obviously this meal takes on a new significance in terms of what Jesus was about to do. And if you're very keen, you might have noticed that Luke mentions the Passover four times in the verses that we read. So it does seem very significant that these two events, that first Passover and what Jesus was about to do, those events are linked very closely. And the first thing that links them, of course, is that we all need to be saved from God's judgment. It's common to all humanity again, Romans 3. There is none righteous, not even one. And the only place that we can look for a solution to this problem of facing God in his fury is to God himself in his mercy. God provides the way out, and that's the gospel. As Jesus takes the bread and wine in verses 19 and 20 of Luke 22, he identifies them as his body broken for us and his blood poured out for us. The bread is unleavened. That means it doesn't have any yeast in it. Um, that represents something of, of purity. Um, it's not that yeast is sinful in any way, um, but the Bible uses it as a kind of a, a picture, a metaphor for sin. It's something that corrupts. Jesus talks about the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod as, as something that corrupts people. And Paul says to both the Corinthians and the Galatians at different times that a little yeast works its way through the whole batch of dough. In other words, even a little sin corrupts us completely. But Jesus is offered up as a, a pure, a sinless sacrifice. We were singing, holy, there is no one like you. Just like the, the lamb of the Exodus was to be one without blemish. Again, to signify the point that this was a sinless offering being given and taking the punishment. And just as the blood of the lamb on the doorpost would signify that a life had been given to save God's people from judgment, so Jesus' blood on a different kind of post would save us. His death achieved essentially what the lamb's death achieved, the rescue of God's people from God's judgment. As the lamb took the judgment of death that the firstborn deserved, so Jesus takes the judgment and punishment of eternal death that we all deserve. And so we're saved by God's judgment, by God in Christ. And we remember this every time we gather around the table together and reenact that last supper just as he's commanded us to do. We recognize and we remember that great substitution that takes place just as the lamb was a substitute, so Jesus takes our place, dies our death, and we're spared God's judgment. Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Only those who had the lamb's blood on their doorpost were saved. And so in the same way, as God offers us Jesus as the way to be rescued, only those who obey him by trusting in his blood by saying that we know that Jesus has delivered us from the death we deserve, only that saves us. So this is how the Passover fits into the bigger picture of the Bible. And remember, that's what we're trying to work out together. It relieves the tension that there is as it points us back to being sinful and being fallen and in deservement of judgment, and at the same time being people who are descendants of Abraham, people to be blessed. The Passover lamb makes that possible in that great substitution, taking the punishment so that justice is served and justice is always served. God will punish sin, but at the same time freeing the people to enjoy the blessing that God had promised. And so for us, 
as descendants of Abraham, blessed and receiving eternal life because Jesus is our great substitute. Our sin is condemned in him and we rise to eternal life because he takes away our sin. Now, I'm going to hazard a guess at this point. I'm going to guess that these parallels between the Passover lamb and Jesus are, you know, they're amazing, but I'm guessing that most of you um, tonight here are Christians and this idea of Jesus as the Lamb of God and Savior and substitute is not particularly new for you tonight. The idea that Jesus is the Lamb given to, to save us from our sin is probably one you've heard before. If that's not the case, then I would urge you to trust in him. His body was broken. His blood was shed for you. So what I want to do as we, as we finish up together is just to offer you a few reflections and observations from the Passover story which tell us something about Christ and being a follower of Jesus today. And there are just a couple of little details from the story. And the first detail is this, the whole lamb was offered as a sacrifice. You maybe picked that up in the reading that they were to eat all of it, and if they didn't eat any of it, if, the, if, they, if they didn't eat all the lamb, if there was any leftover, they were to burn it, it was to be destroyed. And the key thing here is, I don't, I don't think so much it's how much they ate or even what they were to do in burning it, but I think the key thing is that in the end, there was to be no lamb left over. The sacrifice was complete. The Egyptians couldn't come in a few days later and kind of grab part of this lamb and somehow claim some sort of rescue for their firstborn son from leftover lamb. The sacrifice was done once and it is complete. Now that's important for us in a number of ways. It's important for us in terms of what we believe about communion. As some Christian traditions think about Jesus being offered again and again at communion, we don't believe that. We believe that what we do is in remembrance of him and that his sacrifice was once and for all. But I think primarily it's important for us personally because it tells us something about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. I remember somebody um, who was a good friend of mine. I haven't seen her in a long, long time. Um, I was leaving her home one evening after we'd been at a church event. And just before she got out of the car, which was the worst possible time for her to say this, she said, I'm just afraid that when I die, I'll get to see the Lord and that it won't have been enough, that I won't have done enough, that I'm not really good enough to be saved by him. But the fact that the whole lamb was offered actually tells us that that's not the way it is. The sacrifice of Jesus is enough, it's complete. It's not that he left anything behind so that we could kind of top up our salvation as it were, as if the death wasn't enough on its own and we could have given more. But so often, even if we don't believe that in our heads, we, we believe it in how we live our lives. We think we have to, to please Jesus, we think we have to be good enough for him to accept us. We kind of think that, okay, well, he's done most of the work. We, we do believe he died for us, but we also believe that in order for him to accept us, that we kind of have to do our wee bit. And the flip side of that then is when that doesn't happen, which is all the time because we're sinful, then we wonder how he could ever love us. We wonder if we're even Christians. We wonder if it could be enough because we don't live up to it. But the lamb was fully given and Jesus gave everything. The word used in Philippians 2 is that he emptied himself, and that has caused some theological debate over the years, but, but that's what it says. It says that he emptied himself. Here's what Paul says. Though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's from Philippians 2. There was nothing more he could have given. Sometimes we sing those words, what gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He held nothing back. He really gave himself. He really did die. He really did make the complete sacrifice. And that sacrifice is enough. It's not about what we do. It's about what he has done. And it is enough. Hebrews 13 picks this up. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. We don't have to worry about not being good enough to be saved because his sacrifice is enough to save you. And it happens in that order. You're saved and then you obey. You don't obey and then kind of be judged, okay, good enough now, now you can be saved. His sacrifice is enough on its own and it comes first. It comes in that order and I don't think it's any mistake that in the book of Exodus it comes in that order too. We have the Passover, we have the Exodus, and then God gives people the commandments. He gives them the law. It's not the other way around. It's not that they have to obey to be deemed good enough to be saved. The sacrifice is enough. And the second thing I want to reflect on just briefly as we finish is the fact that the Israelites, as they ate the meal, as they ate the Passover meal, they were to be ready. Here's verse 11 of Exodus 12. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. I think that's why elsewhere we read in Scripture that as we eat the bread and drink the cup together, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. There's something about eating that meal which is looking forward to what is going to happen. As we eat, as we drink, we look forward. We live as people of the cross. We're looking forward. We're ready for Jesus to return. And the Bible tells us to be ready for Christ's return. And the way to do that is in how we live our lives. Here are some words from 1 Thessalonians 5 where where Paul is talking about how the Lord will return like a thief in the night, but that we should be ready looking forward to that day. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, as in fact you are doing. We are ready for Christ's return in terms of how we live, being alert, being self-controlled, putting on faith and love and hope. Do you notice that Paul talks about putting those on as items of clothing? I don't think that's insignificant in relation to the Exodus either. We're we're, we're to wear faith and love and hope. In other words, we're to be 
ready for Christ's return, just as we live for him. And I suppose tonight, as we finish off, I just want to leave you with that challenge. As you look at your life tonight, I'm sure you see lots of things. Maybe for some of you, it's business or or your job, family, studies. Perhaps you see part of your life that you know is sinful or that you haven't quite surrendered over to Christ. You just keep that bit for yourself. Perhaps there are things in your Christian life that you'd like to do, but you just never seem to get around to them. You'll get around to it sometime, but it never seems to happen. But those who ate the Passover meal were to be ready to go to the promised land as they ate. And so as we're we're saved by Christ, our Passover lamb, we're to be ready for his return. Do we view our lives through that lens? Is that our perspective? Because the call of Christ is to repent and to follow him now, not to eventually get around to it. Probably some of the most scary words that Jesus ever said are in the Gospel of John when he said, anybody who puts his hand to the plow for the kingdom of God and looks back isn't worthy of the kingdom. Now, I thank the Lord that he is gracious and full of mercy, and however many times we fail, he will always accept us because his sacrifice in the first place is enough. But those are serious, serious words. We're not to look back. We're not to hold anything back. Does your life look like that's what you're living for? Does your life look like the life of someone whose top priority is living for Christ, who longs for his return, is ready for Christ's return, has nothing in the way of being with him so that if he returned tomorrow, going to him would be every bit as natural as drawing in oxygen is right now? That's the call. It's a challenging call, but that is the call. The people at dressed for action. People need rescuing from God's judgment. In Egypt, the firstborn sons face death. Ultimately, everyone faces death. We know that. And separation from God and his blessing. God provides a way by offering a substitute, someone who doesn't deserve to die, dying in the place of someone who does deserve to die. And the ultimate substitute is Jesus, God's perfect son, who died in our place just as the lambs died in the place of firstborn sons. And as the Israelites trusted in the lamb's blood to deliver the firstborn from death, so we trust in Jesus' blood to deliver us. And we rejoice in that together. The Israelites were to remember how God rescued them in Egypt by sharing a meal. They were to do that through all generations, tell their children about it. And we're to do the same as we remember how the Lord delivered us from death at the cross. And we're called to live in a way that reflects that, in readiness for his return and to complete his work. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the love that brought Jesus, the one who is above all powers, above all kingdoms, above all things that we could ever know about or imagine, down into this earth to die in our place. Lord, we can hardly take that in. But Lord, we pray that you would help each of us know it more fully, the sacrifice that he made for us. And so, Lord, help us to live in readiness for his return, ready to serve him, ready to follow him wherever he may take us. And Lord, we just pray at the moment for those among us whose life is difficult just now, 
We maybe don't know Christ's leading in our lives at the moment, where we're facing tough situations and scenarios. Lord, we pray that he would be with us. Lord, thank you that he is the great Passover lamb, has brought us into your kingdom and into your presence. Lord, may he be with each one of us this night and forever. In his name. Amen.